Welcome to episode 2 of Iolian Broadcasting, the second half of our two-part discussion of James B.V. Thompson's poem, The City of Dreadful Night. This time, Cantos 12-14 to 14 provide the conversational catalyst, but if you're interested in reading the whole poem, which we obviously recommend, head over to the Iolian Broadcasting Instagram page for quick access. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Victorian society was, you know, uh, inherently uh, about progression, right, and about industry. You know that that was the kind of the the you know the the kind of universal understanding in England was that we're progressing and industry is good. And you, this is why I guess you have the kind of poet as the antithesis to that you know he's always there uh in thompson's sense you know he kind of makes into this like sort of phantasmagoric city of like you know nightmares though that's what london is it's not this progression you know it's almost you know it's it's a, it's a cultural criticism obviously um but it's it's not wrapped up it's wrapped up sorry in a sort of abstraction that you know it can be taken for granted as this mm. that's i like the um i like the idea of um that kind of uh pro- progress as a kind of illusion that is yet yeah, at the same time kind of so it's so it's such a strong and profound illusion that's so embedded in the psyche of the kind of modern individual or at least in 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 society and politics that it has still has the power to build worlds because so i really like the the image of there's a quote i came across a quote um i was just gonna say just 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 briefly at the end of that just like the uh, this the, i came across a quote from this, matthew beaumont has got like a book on just a book of essays on like night walking like the idea just like i was, I was having a flick through that and in the introduction he's got an introduction by will self <clears throat> and he just this, this turn of phrase was like um so like saying but by like the 1740s london was a city and the quote is perpetually shaped and reshaped by the processes of capital accumulation mm-hmm. and i just like that idea yeah, of like yeah, sure. capital or like this illusion of progress if you will as a sort of abstraction of capital in a, or like vice versa i guess capital is an yeah, abstraction yeah. of the illusion of progress i don't know whichever way you want to put that um has the power to literally it creates this kind of city as a sort of like swirling maelstrom of literal buildings that are kind of riding this tide and this fluid motion of this weird circular circular thing of of progress or whatever it kind of means mm-hmm. i guess that's where thompson saw through this propaganda and illusion of progress and you know the amazement of what industry can be what was it you know at the same time you know darwin just released his books about you know uh, the evolutionary uh, progress you know this you know this is how human beings came to be blah 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 this is how you know and also people were taking that as a kind of mm-hmm. social darwinian sense as well um you know, other other kind of like you know mm. you know biologists <laughs> mm. kind of you know you could perfect human beings in a way you know and that goes hand in hand with i think progression and the the illusion of progression in the kind of victorian sense you know we can eventually 
perfect society to a certain point, you know? Mm. Yeah. I think, you know, Thompson, he was definitely, you know, read a lot about this, you know, you know, I think a lot of poets at the time, you know, Matthew Arnold has a poet called, um, I think it's called like Dover's beach, Dover beach, you know, very pessimistic as well. Mm. Uh, Dover beach at the end, he says, uh, swept with confused alarms of struggle and flight where ignorant armies clash by night, which also has, you know, this element of night, which is so pervasive mm-hmm. in um, Thompson's work, you know, this, which I also interpret night <laughs> as smoggy, smoggy London, <laughs> mm. the big yeah. smoke, you know. <laughs> but it's cool because in, in, in that context, like, I, again, another little thing that I kind of I, I lifted, or like not lifted, but it was inspired by from a turn of phrase in that same introduction, another little fucking will self. Um, turn of phrase <laughs> was that he um, he 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 describes um, the the circadian as the favoured meter of capital. So the idea that capitalism sleeps and wakes in the yeah. same patterns that humans do, obviously because it's literally mapped onto human activity and behaviour. But it's yeah. a really nice image because it then allows you to start thinking about night as a pause or a lull or a trough or even a suspension entirely of that kind of rhythm. Elongating like your space within capitalist time frame. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It kind of gives this pause, this moment of reflection uh, and this moment of, I mean, yeah, again, like I, I, I know I, I keep using the phrase, but like this absence, this absence of this capitalist rhythm. So like at night, it all kind of pauses. And so this illusion of progress can be seen as just an illusion. Like it's not real. It's not actually happening. We're just kind of telling ourselves it's happening, which is obviously quite intrinsic to like, I think his kind of philosophy in, in, in this poem that sort of, really feeling the 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 gaps in the fabric of uh this the social lie of of like you said of, of progress and capital progress capitalism as progress Large glooms were gathered in the mighty fane, with tinted moon gleams slanting here and there, and all was hush, no swelling organ strain, no chant, no voice of murmuring of prayer. No priests came forth, no tinkling censers fumed, and the high altar space was unillumed. Around the pillars and against the walls leaned men and shadows, Others seemed to brood, bent or recumbent in secluded stalls. Perchance they were not a great multitude, save in that city of so lonely streets, where one may count up every face he meets. All patiently awaited the event, without a stir or sound, as if no less self-occupied, doom-stricken while attent. And then we heard a voice of solemn stress, 
from the dark pulpit, and our gaze there met, two eyes which burned as never eyes burned yet, two steadfast and intolerable eyes, burning beneath a broad and rugged brow, the head behind it of enormous size, and as black fir grooves in a large window bough, our rooted congregation gloomed arrayed, by that great sad voice deep and full were swayed, O melancholy brothers, dark, 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 O battling in the black floods without an ark, O spectral wanderers of unholy night, my soul hath bled for you these sunless years, with bitter blood drops running down like tears, O dark, 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 withdrawn from joy and light, my heart is sick with anguish for your bale, your woe hath been my anguish, ye I quail, and perish in your perishing unblessed, and I have searched the highests and depths, the scope of all our universe with desperate hope, to find some solace for your wild unrest. And now at last, authentic word I bring, witnessed by every dead and living thing, good tidings of great joy for you, for all, there is no God, no fiend with names divine, made us and torture us if we must pine, it is to satiate no being's gall. It was the dark delusion of a dream, that living person conscious and supreme, whom we must curse for cursing us with life, whom we must curse because the life he gave could not be buried in the quiet grave, could not be killed by poison or by knife. This little life is all we must endure, the grave's most holy peace is ever sure. We fall asleep and never wake again, nothing is of us but the mouldering flesh whose elements dissolve and merge afresh in earth, air, water, plants and other men. We finish thus, and all our wretched race shall finish with its cycle and given place to other beings with their own time doom. Infinite eons ere our kind began, infinite eons after the last man has joined the mammoth in the earth's tomb and womb. We bow to the universal laws, which never had for man a special cause, of cruelty or kindness, love or hate. If toads and vultures are obscene to sight, if tigers burn with beauty and with might, is it by favour or by wrath of fate? All substance lives and struggles evermore, through countless shapes continually at war, by countless interactions, internet. If one is born a certain day on earth, all times and forces tended to that birth. Not all the world could change it or hinder it. I find no hint throughout the universe of good or ill, of blessing or of curse. I find alone necessity supreme with infinite mystery, abysmal, dark, unlighted ever by the faintest spark. For us, the flinting shadows of a dream. O oh, brothers of sad lives, they are so brief. A few short years must bring us all relief. Can we not bear these years of labouring breath? But if you would not this poor life fulfil, lo, you are free to end it when you will, without the fear of waking after death. The organ-like vibrations of his voice thrilled through the vaulted aisles and died away. The yearning of the tones which bade rejoice was sad and tender as a requiem lay. Our shadowy congregation rested still, 
as brooding on that ended when you will. I basically have just been quite interested in this by, as I've as I've said again, just like all, all the kind of manifestations of the image of absence and emptiness in this poem. Um, and something that keeps kind of coming up repeatedly for me is, is the power of, is, is the physically empty spaces, um, which is obviously quite a, a well-versed and like profound concept within architecture generally, you know, the, the idea of building cathedrals and shit as enormous vaulted spaces because they're literally intended to make you feel small and uh, kind of overwhelmed <clears throat> and like you're, you're being transcended. Um, but then I felt like that, I mean, it's, it's kind of definitely being used in a fairly nefarious way in um, section 14, particularly where, uh, where you have this kind of sermon happening in this, what's, what is the first? Was, yeah. Like the, just the first, the first um, stanza of, of Canto 14, it's just this kind of pulsatingly empty space. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know, I just, I kind of, again, was kind of yeah, riffing off. Of the, there's no chanting. There's no, as you, you assume a sermon would have this kind of, as you say, pulsating waves of music and like, you know, sound, you know, to, to enter and, you know, uh, bid people to come in, you know, there's a whole point I guess, of music in uh, religion is to make people enchanted. And, you know, what's that? I want to come and see that. But there, there's like this oppositeness of that in the, you know, like people are just having to enter because of yeah. like, that's the monotony of this nature of the city of night. They just enter. There's no music, you know. There's no organs. There's nothing. It's almost. It's almost like a. It's almost such. A, it's so empty. It's almost textured in its emptiness. <laughs> like you can feel. You can feel the threads of the empty space, and like, I guess I. I don't know if it'll sort of end up staying in. But when we were talking about the, um, uh, the idea of mm, uh, the 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 no love, no uh, dead love, dead hope, dead faith, that kind of weird inverted, the persistent three, that weird inverted holy trinity. Um, or, or you might even say like an occult. Sorry? That was a little rhyme there. <laughs> it was. <laughs> See, I, I'm, getting, I'm getting in my bones. Yeah. The, um, the, the occult, like the occult kind of trinity, maybe. Then suddenly this... This this section to me, particularly in the context of a cathedral, just it feels extremely kind of mm-hmm. occult. Um, sure. And and again, yeah, just like the what is what is the kind of structuring force here? Because it's not faith. It's not like, or it maybe is a kind of perverse faith, but it's a faith in in something don't like diametrically opposed to God. It's like. And an ab it's a faith in an absence of meaning or or of kind of omniscient authority kind of thing. He, um, was, he was best friends with uh, devoted atheists of um, of the time. He, he, I feel like he keeps setting up symbolic kind of ne- symbol symbolic structures, or keeps kind of cons- keeps consulting kind of symbolic indexes, which are 
intentionally kind of uh, negated or like flattened out. So I, I was, I, I kind of just kept thinking about that Baudelairean idea of like the forest of symbols, you know, his idea that like, like human life is just a process of navigating a forest of symbols of like being this, this network of symbolic order that you kind of move through. Whereas in this, that's kind of been turned into like a desert of symbols where you're totally immured in and like embedded in this total influx of, of symbolic meaning, but it's kind of all somehow flattened out and muted. Yeah. There's no kind of edges to any of it, which basically I think I'm trying to just sort of reach towards this idea that we've talked, like we kind of maybe have touched on of like the way that capitalism and capital, uh, the way that kind of symbolic orders have proliferated through kind of capitalism weird flattening out yeah where you kind of have a totally um if you kind of yeah if you sort of think about like this kind of idea of capital capital or like you know mark market um culture as being this kind of vast over proliferation of symbolic meaning <laughs> and value to such an extent whereby it's the, this imagery that keeps coming up of like the sea or like there's a the moment where he describes uh, I won't be able to find it now, but he describes, I think he's standing, I think he's meant to be standing outside St. Paul's Cathedral and he describes it as a rock, a wash that's just standing steady in this dark ocean that's just swelling all around it. And there's all this imagery of just kind of this flood, basically, of sim of of just of just a pure onslaught of kind of uh yeah, sim symbolic more symbolic meaning and 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 value generation which through its pure multiplicity comes to flatten itself out, kind of has this fluid. There's no, there's no handholds. There's no kind of edges that can be grabbed onto, um, which then kind of just leaks into so many different aspects of the text, like this, this big cathedral space, this sermon's happening in that is literally physically, almost <laughs> existentially threateningly empty. Yeah. <laughs> that like, there's, there's no physical, actual, existential things for you to look at or listen to or respond to in any way. Uh, and yet at the same time, there's this sense of being kind of almost drowning in something, some presence that there's just kind of no way to sort of characterize. Um, and that then being itself the strata of the sermon, that is the thing that the sermon is on. That is the kind of God, if you will, this kind of force um, that is little more than a force. I don't know. Do you think, like, um, you know how in Canto 4, where he's talking about how he got to the city and how the city is meant to be this beacon of, you know, progression and you know where where well cultural signification happens you know it happens in the city and he, he's like you know the guy's wandering through the desert the desert is like dangerous and maybe what thompson was kind of alluding to might be the kind of antithesis of what the romantic drawn about how nature needs to be you know we need to kind of understand and have nature within us you know we, we were not humans without it in a sense um mm. and the, the well the character who is doing the ceremony is when he's out in nature out mm -hmm. of the city city's 
walls and gates, it's dangerous uh, and it's haunted by all these Boschian monsters mm. of, you know, despair and, you know, bat-like wings and, you know, tentacles and all this stuff. You know, he's telling this to the people of the city and how horrible nature is. It might be something, you know, contemporary for now within regards to how the city, most cities are where people are living in now more than ever, you know, cities mm. are being flocked into everywhere from, from, you know, the countryside, from everywhere, you know, everyone's coming to the cities mm. and maybe you can almost like, cause in Victorian London, I know you'd come to the city for work and this is why everyone comes to the city is for work, but perhaps maybe Thompson was giving us a sign saying that we have to tame nature in a sense, like tame our inner mm. nature, the opposing of being afraid of like, you know, the sublime of nature. We, we need people back. I mean, you know, maybe the, the, maybe he was like being anti-romantic by the sense in the same sense being pro I mean, this is where my like romanticized growing up in the countryside bullshit comes from. But, you know, yeah, I don't know. Like, you know, I'm sick and tired of living in London. Who knows? But yeah. Yeah. Uh, but especially now with COVID, you know, I've nothing but London. Yeah. Kind of wonder it's outside of this. You know, maybe this is what the preacher. So look at the, the guy who's talking as a preacher in a way. There's no like moral lesson in Canto 4. I don't think there's like. There's, there's perhaps a moral lesson, but, you know, which I think each canto has a kind of moral parable to it, but it leads to absurdness. It doesn't lead to an actual strict answer. It's, it's up to mm. you, I guess, as the, the wanderer, the somnambulist to work out. It kind of mm. reminds me of like a Twilight Zone episode. Each canto is like a Twilight Zone episode. And, you know, in Twilight Zone, these parables are played out in the Twilight Zone. And each canto is almost like a different episodic parable. But, you know, as well, you know, in the Twilight Zone, it's up to you to work out what, you know, as a parable should be, you know. Um, and at, at the same time, it's just absurdism, though. There, there is no actual real lesson to be um, learned. It's mm. kind of crescendo into an end of absurdism. You know, and then it kind of builds up again, and it's kind of like waves. So there's kind of this like building up of meaning, which he then lets collapse, and then yes, yeah. yeah, and then and then you're left with this kind of existential absurdist kind of what did he mean by all of this? You know, why, why, why depressive sort of landscape? But I guess it's like you know. It comes down to the sort of alienation and the absurdism of reality. That absurdism is, it can proliferate into the dream world of the city of night, I guess. Yeah. It's interesting that you read, like, because when you, when you said about how in Canto 4, when you have this kind of, I don't know, this uh, this guy who's just giving giving this street sermon and it's just, just, just I, I hadn't originally read it as... Uh, a kind of uh, a threat, not a threat, but like a kind of um, a warning about mm. these kind of monsters that exist out there, which, which you're right. It kind of, it is like, but I hadn't sort of initially picked up on that, but it's interesting because it's like, 
if the city kind of represents this ordered, rigid, rigidified and like homogenized structure of, going to use the word the term again, but like symbolic order where everybody kind of knows what the knows what the value system is and knows what fucking everything means mm-hmm. and it's all kind of orientated around this kind of objective correlative of capitalism <laughs> um and you oppose that to whatever exists outside of the city this kind of state of nature if you will it kind of makes me think there's like that um i think it's like Merle- merleau-ponty when he talks about his his there's this term when he talks about perception of wild meaning, which I've always kind of read to mean is just because his, his conception of perception, his conception of perception is very, um, it's reflexive. It's like the idea that, you know, you perceive something and it impacts how you think and feel and then ultimately behave. And then that impacts what you perceive. And then that impacts what you think and feel and how you behave. And then that is, so it's this kind of endless cycle of mm-hmm. perception as this reflexive loop. Um, and wild meaning is the kind of his term for that process, the way that meaning is generated organically through this sort of system. Um, but it's something that can't really be controlled by any central agent because every agent is part of this system. So you can't ever. So I was kind of, kind of like, I was I was always I was studying in the context of cinema and it's you know this how how do you create meaning through perception when meaning is created when meaning through perception is wild meaning the meaning that you perceive is generated through this uncontrolled uh, runaway system of of action perception and 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 you know, response I guess a lot of modern cinema as well is you know the meaning is already created for you so that's already been well exactly it's that thing you know that kind of perception has been taken away uh, um, um but it's interesting because like in the taking away of, nature you know what the city does it kind of yeah this vacuum of nature you know because nature is people kind of um glorify nature right you know? yeah but nature is you know inherently quite horrific and disruptive and the city is like this pacification and i think that comes out in the the story itself it's like uh, exactly yeah is that where you're going that's exactly where i was going but like in the con because when you were talking about how uh putting this negative value in very broad strokes on this sort of natural structure and the positive the positive value on the structure of the city you know this idea of wild meaning if you kind of if you kind of um if you want to de- if you <clears throat> if you define that as meaning that is kind of being generated in an unconstrained natural organic way through instinctive behavior and freedom then you know that kind of correlates with the natural state and the opposite sort of rigidified structure of meaning you know anti wild meaning is kind of you know the <laughs> the capitalist centered city state mm. um Wild meaning is fucking is chaos. It's it's freaky. No one controls it, yeah. which is obviously the antithesis of the whole philosophy of capitalism. Yeah, is order and control. And so the city state, the city, sorry, the the city, the city state, the city becomes a placation, a sort of pacif- pacification of you know, it's a place to hide from wild meaning. It and then it kind of maps onto that the appeal of fucking capitalism. It's Sure. It's easy. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's pre pre packaged meaning within the walls of the city. Um, 
you know, outside there's fucking dragons and all sorts. Like you won't like that. <laughs> you know, just stay in the city and, you know, spin your wheel and make your 40, whatever the fuck it was, 40 shillings a day. Or yeah. That? Yeah, that's, probably, yeah, yeah. that's probably fucking loads. But like, <clears throat> yeah, and just be happy and don't think about it. Why You don't have to worry about wild meaning. Um, but yeah, no, it's interesting because I'd not, I'd not actually picked up on that quite it quite actually apparent <laughs> uh valuation of the city versus this scary fucking desert or whatever that is outside i think that's the thing you know it, it, thompson's a victorian poet and he grew up in glasgow and london these kind of um, very industrial cities and poets the romantic poets you know a lot of them were obsessed with the countryside and got influence from the countryside and from nature you know a lot of pastoral kind of stuff and it comes with like thompson and de quincey who maybe were kind of the poets of the cities you know the sit like you know with baudelaire mm-hmm. well they were you know they kind of took a took poetry away from the countryside and nature and you know and made it intrinsically human in a way and almost more mm. nightmarish then, you know, because uh, it is, I mean, it is nightmarish. Uh, both sides are, you know, we can, we could say that because <laughs> we can understand both a lot better, I guess. Um, mm. Yeah. You know, just, just the whole idea of the somnambulist, I don't know, you know, that's a, that's an idea or like a, a flaneur, I guess, is a very city orientated term. You, you can't, mm. I mean, you can be a flaneur in the countryside, but it kind of, it doesn't have the same contextual meaning as it would in a city, perhaps, or a town. You know, in the countryside, you kind of just are walking, you know, in a sense, flaneuring. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's a sort of difference to the, uh, the, the poetry, you know, the city and nature, I guess. You know, the city, the complete human you know built thing and the complete natural or like you know natural order and like human anthropocentric order you know there's this uh it comes through the poem quite well i think i think that's exactly it i think that's the distinction you know that it's that whole the the flanner it's that society of the spectacle and the sort of the idea and the psychogeography idea that you know in the city you're literally walking through and a projection of the human psyche in yeah. physical form walking through a an in you know central london you're walking through literally a, a, a an external manifestation of human intention and desire it's a completely artificial human made environment purpose built for humans as well which is where the kind of there's a lot of cool stuff about I feel like he, as you said, he has a very cool sense of the power of, of architecture and of buildings in this, um, in this poem. And the idea that every building that a human designs and builds is the, the rendering actual of something that was of, of a potentiality within a human. And so it kind of engineers this weird extra metaphysical space where the the human potentiality becomes actual i don't know i don't know if i'm explaining this very well but like it basically it's i, I mean i know <laughs> i will probably end up talking about her a lot but like lisa robertson one of my favorite poets she has this concept of soft architecture 
which is a way of talking about a huge swathe of different things at once, primarily using architecture as a model to talk about how humans exist reflexively within their environment. That every, if you take the kind of Bacalardian idea that a hut or like a kind of uh, rudimentary dwelling space is the most basic and fundamental projection of the individual into the world. It's like the, the kind of most basic level of mediation between the individual and the world. Um, and in that way, in that way, you can see how the dwelling space and the hut and the home becomes an extension of the self. It's kind of this shell that exists in potential and then we build it and it becomes actual. Yeah. And so this idea of soft architecture is just this idea that like everyone's uh, mode of intentionality in the world, everyone's dispositions and emotions and behaviours and habits of thought and habits of behaviour build this kind of structure, this soft architecture around you uh, that will determine how you kind of interact with the physical world. She kind of also uses the term scaffold, which I thought was quite nice. Like mm-hmm. this, this, this trans, this translucent structure that these rails that you run along kind of in the yeah, world. Yeah. Um, and every, every kind of, every building is, Ace is a soft architecture made hard, <laughs> made real. Um, and I just, I just can't help but feel like there, there is something really spooky, basically, about the, 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 the uh, process of designing, planning and building arc, uh, a building because you're, you have the ghost, this sort of, this building exists as a ghost sort of, around you <laughs> as an architect and then you build and in, in, in very abstract terms though it exists in your in your dispositions and the way that you want to interact with the world and then you build this um you build this building to encase that and to embody that there's a term in Bacalard the hot holds fast the builder's dreams um that like the hut is a kind of the building is a is a frozen ghost <laughs> of intention and disposition. Um, and I feel like there's a very strong f- feeling of that in, in this, in this poem that he kind of feels the ghostly presence of buildings as captured potential and captured intention. I don't know if I explained that very well, but there's, there's something spooky. I know what you mean. There. I know what you mean for sure as well. Like, you know, to bring it back to Victorian London, like where it was writing, you know, there's a massive infrastructure being built everywhere. So, you know, it's very similar to London today, you know, post-World War II, everything being bombed out, all the, you know, 60s builds everywhere. And, you know, all these places in, you know, Southeast London, East London being built, built up, you know, there's more and more buildings being put up every day. There's the London skyline is full of cranes. The Mm. idea of just like, phantoms and like how phantoms from the past is a very you know kind of ontological idea the phantoms of where he was talking about have present today i think i've read somewhere it was like seven hundred thousand or something people move have moved out of london to the surrounding countrysides to the commuter towns because people haven't been going to work so you have these uh these these structures that have been built for human inhabitation is living there and what is inhabiting these buildings are shadows 
And he talks about shadows a lot in this poem. There's just shadows everywhere in the in the streets, in the corners of the streets, and the in the you know the the kind of doorways of buildings. You know, this whole city is inhabited by shadows of the night, which is almost like an oxymoronic. It's it's a paradox, isn't it? You know, but because um, you can't have shadows without light, but there's shadows. The shadow everywhere. at night, yeah, 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 yeah. And um, within London being built, and be, they they keep on building, you know, up where we're going to be covered in shadows. You know, there's not going to be direct sunlight. You know, mm. the streets are going to be taken, uh, like dearmed. I don't know, dearmed for sunlight. There, there's not going to be sunlight there unless it's going to be magnified from a a glass building mm. i like that idea yeah i like that idea of of the 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 endless growth and proliferation the kind of almost malignant uh metastatic growth of of the city as kind of engineering absences and like this this idea that like because i mean i mean another way that buildings are are like ghosts or like kind of like sort of like kind of another way the buildings are like ghosts is that they are they are literally <clears throat> the physical persistence through time of something that has otherwise died you know st paul's cathedral for example the people that built and inhabited that are fucking long dead yeah but we can still feel their presence in a very kind of you know wishy-washy but very also real sense by going and standing in that building buildings persist through cultural temporal economic social change they're still there they are stalwarts of human culture they are persistence embodied but at the same time like you say they kind of engineer these weird negative spaces not just in the form of shadows but like you know it's also it's a really interesting phenomenon in in, in london that you'll see of like buildings get kind of crammed into the, the, the sort of available space to build on is becoming so sparse that buildings get built in the fucking wackiest places yeah. and like little kind of places build up within courtyards of other buildings and mad shit like that and it gets to a point where you kind of have these little spaces that are too small or the wrong size to build on um just kind of being kept and surrounded by these other buildings and but then you can't help but perceive it as kind of like empty land in quote marks like this weird absence that in your head should be a building yeah. <laughs> because everything everything else is um like this weird sense of yeah of like engineering this weird in, inversion this negative where you're seeing the city as the city is buildings it's not spaces <laughs> um you know architecture is like what it seems like now you know we need to build around other buildings but not for like the benefit like not benefiting anything else but the building that mm. is needing to be built at the time it's its own logic yeah it's all this contorted uh architecture we have now that makes you feel uneasy because you know non-euclidean kind of geometry is makes you feel un uneasy mm. you know and this comes with like you know postmodernist architecture which everyone thinks is amazing you know, and it's, it is it works of freaking art, but at the same time, there's a certain unease about a building not being geometrically Euclidean in a way because it's uh, it's not 
part of the forms of you know they're not platonic forms are they you know there's an unease about it and i think that's has something to do with the city of dreadful night and you know he doesn't mention it outright but there's an unease about architecture and perhaps that's something to do with like the looming and the like the gothic about it there's something uneasy and uh, you know offsetting about things Mm. when he describes architecture um you know maybe he's not alluring to you know non-euclidean exactly but you know like lovecraft does you know he loves describing a city that's pretty much impossible to build because you know human beings think that's horrific because they've never seen that before the poem is like uh it's a nightmarish poem and that ties into horror i feel like the poem has a horrific value i think it's that thing of it has its own is that it's the uneasiness is like an an alien logic a logic that is not human a self-proliferating system that is kind of so it just it just makes me think of um when you were particularly now when you kind of you can watch a skyscraper being built in london from like you can watch it being built from like three miles away which is kind of you know the perspective that you'll see it best um but from that perspective you won't see people building it you'll mm. just see a building growing yeah um and it is kind of that inherent sort of uneasiness like that you almost you know yeah, literally yeah like a fungus kind of just like sprouting and it has that exact thing of like the buildings in this poem have this kind the of inorganic yeah they have this horrifying non-human intrinsically non-human quality despite everything that i've just said about how buildings are extensions of people in a very fundamental metaphysical way they are they they're also kind of determined by their own logic like what we were just saying you know this weird sense that in london buildings are necessitated by other buildings how you build a building is determined by the buildings around it and suddenly you have this whole city that's growing not only being guided by its own logic but being driven by its own logic and then i think it does come back to like that fundamental weirding the uncanniness of capital and capitalism the runaway system that we don't actually control however human it is like buildings were meant to be either worshipped in or worshipped at i think you know a lot of like uh sculpture and uh architecture you know, in the Bronze Age, you would have your own shrine in your house. So the house was, you know, a kind of mini temple in a way. Um, but it is cool. It's like that idea of space and built space is intrinsic. It's an intrinsic tool of how we, I mean, on a fundamental level, communicate, like you say, worship and commune. Yeah. Like we do that in space and space aids it. You know, like you said, the taller the spire, the more, like you said earlier, the more cavernous the cathedral the more the closer you feel to God, like it's, it invokes something really intrinsic, which then going back to the poem, I think it's Canto, I think it's 14, that, um, that first stanza where he, it literally just is describing how fucking empty this space is, that it is an anti-space. With everything just being empty, mm. we can build things as much as we want, but it doesn't matter because there's no human beings in there, really. There's nothing um, occupying space but space itself. 
which, you know, in that sense, you can say it's the fucking, you know, antithesis of space, you know? Like, Do you yeah. mean in the sense that they're not designed to live in anymore? They're designed for like... No, no, they're designed for for oligarchs to make money out of, you know? <laughs> um, and, 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 and you know what you were saying earlier, how buildings are put up so quickly, you can just see it almost uh, as, you know, like, you know, you'd watch... Uh, a, a flower grow in sort of sped up time. Yeah, exactly. Like that. Um, but, you know, this is, it's subliminal to you because you have to navigate the streets that were built for you anyway. So when you do see it built, or sorry, when you do see it getting built, you are, you know, you're kind of in awe and wonder. It's like, oh, what's this going to be? And then, you know, the next time you're there, like, oh, sh- shit, it's, you know, <laughs> Yeah. already it's only been like a year or a half a year yeah you know it's 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 not you know there's no long-lasting rigidity to the structure itself it's almost built upon it's built like it shall be a ghost anyway yeah it's built ephemerally like life anyway you know maybe it's meant to be a sort of mirror of life you know and then ephemeralness of it mm. yeah um yeah, the ephemerality of architecture, like <clears throat> the idea of the logic being fundamentally flipped, how, like you said, that architecture in its really most fundamental, primal, kind of intuitive, instinctive sense is, is designed to house, protect, and perpetuate through time <laughs> people. Um, and then I guess I guess abstracted to gods and institutions. But yeah, then you kind of suddenly have the logic undermined where, like you said, houses and buildings are built for the sake of building buildings. They're built because they'll be bought by someone, surely, eventually. And they will be. If you build a building in London, it will be built. It will be bought by someone. There's the kind of logic at the heart of the concept of building <laughs> of architecture the sort of the sort of intuitive phenomenon existential logic is is no longer there and so you have these buildings that are suddenly yeah ghosts in in the kind of the opposite way in that they're sort of empty on the inside i mean that's <laughs> sort of fucking yeah, yeah. pun intended but like they're they are ephemeral, yeah. They're, they're not built for anyone, for anything. And so, but yeah, I guess that's, that's again, the logic of a fucking capital. They're built, things are made because things should be made and people will buy those things that are made. They're not made because people want or need them. Like It's like Bittai's idea of the cursed chair. You know, we have this sort of... Uh overabundancy of things that we don't even need anymore um and we just need and constantly want things that we don't need um you know we need buildings being you know well we don't need them but (laughs) you know capital might uh which is you know you want to go to like nick land's idea you know capital has a sentience in its own sense (laughs) <laughs> and um you know it can dictate human action 
and you know maybe mm-hmm. he just wants uh, buildings to be built for no fucking good reason at all. And mm. you know we have um, more homeless people in the streets in the past like twenty years than we have ever had. You know, and um, there are like in a there's an abundance of empty buildings in London that have already been built. We don't need more, you know. And it's just this idea of perpetual um, kind of like manufacturing of dreams in a way because you mm. manufacture. This 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 kind of um, building, this architectural, you know, desire. I guess you could call it, and they're always quite phallic looking as well. So you know, you want the you want the highest building, you know, you want the you want the top room in the highest building because you know obvious reasons. Because <laughs> it's the tickliest uh, spot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and um, it's just it's it just you know this this sort of a. Yeah, it's just, it just feels like who lives in these places, you know? It feels like, you know, you walk around, you know, Elephant and Castle, these places, and, you know, there's, like, three lights on in a building and a new build. It's like, who lives there? You know, who would want to live there as well? Um, mm. And and then there's people on the streets, home, you know, homeless dudes on the streets. Uh, and, and he does talk about this, you know, James Thompson, you know, it seems like we're kind of um, digressing a lot, but... He talks about this in the bit where uh, they're walking into the cathedral and he has these, uh, what's it? He, talk, he, talk, he says, one second, yeah. So he has this, like in the third canto onwards, when um, you're walking into the cathedral, you almost have this kind of, uh, what is that film? Metropolis idea where everyone's just in line walking into their work, but this is like, you know, they're walking into this kind of the mm. cathedral, but not cathedral, I guess. Um, and, and yeah. you know, it has a description of every person, I say every person, but, you know, the kind of like significant people that who are going into this cathedral. And, you know, the first one, from pleading in a senate of rich lords, from some scant justice to our countless hordes, who toil have have starved? Uh, who toil have starved with scarce of human right? Awake from daydreams to this real night, you know. And it keeps on going. And then another one is like, from making hundreds laugh and rule with glee, but my by my tr- transcendent feats of mimicry and humor wanton as elfish sprite, I wake up from adhering to this real night. And it is that, you know, that's obviously the comedian who's going into the, uh, into the cathedral. And the first guy is obviously like a, a lord, you know, someone who has power, you know. Um, like, yeah, this one as well. From wandering through many solemn scene of opium visions with a heart serene and intellect miraculously bright, awake from daydreams to this real night. You know, that's the, the, the opium eater, you know, and he's got, he's walking mm. into, um, you know, the, 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 you know, it's the, um, the phantoms of the night, which are now pervasive today because everyone's a freaking phantom, you know, in a way. Yeah. Um, it's- the, the outcasts of the night are ever pervasive now in daylight and night, you know, you, you, there's no mm. escaping it. Um, 
you talk you know I like you, this bit sorry yeah in 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 the context of um what we were just saying about the kind of the sort of death of the death of building <laughs> the death of buildings the death of architectural space as a mm. kind of uh, existentially kind of profound thing for people um this kind of this this canto now to me just reads like a what's the word uh when you go and awake like a kind of a weird sort of funeral procession of everyone coming to pay their respects of all these real these viscerally real people with their sort of real complex lives and backgrounds coming to sort of pay their respects to this building which you know in in a couple of decades will have no meaning in it anymore mm. as it as it as it does now like um and this this idea kind of it adds this weird horror this weird sort of like air of spook of um of this extra layer of kind of uh of spookiness and sort of and 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 melancholy to the poem every time he talks about these buildings because you know he may have sort of be he may be projecting it or kind of have a sort of inkling and it's sort of what he's driving at but he doesn't know that in in a hundred years time these buildings will be kind of graves of themselves yeah <laughs> they'll be yeah. sort of they'll be sort of like just these big empty shells that are standing there in in the city um Sorry, yeah, I know I kind of just diverted from where you were going with that for a minute, but that just when you were when you were reading through it just then, it just it proper it just struck me as this this is bizarre kind of ritualistic. Yeah, it's very, um, it's like every outsider expelling their kind of darkest desires, you know, to enter this church where there will be no satisfaction and there will be no mm. of you know sin, I guess, because the the actual sermon itself is. Uh, a kind of admittance of sin in a way it admitted yeah. of perpetual uh, melancholy and perpetual ungratification of life you know there is all in uh, this yeah exactly like um i feel and that this just sounds like the the, the kind of the anti-priest maybe saying all these things and you know this this bit kind of is the moral i think of the whole poem this kind of stanza here i find no maybe it's not the moral of the stanza itself but the moral maybe of uh thompson you know how he might perhaps you know understand and live mm. by i find no hint throughout the universe of good or ill of blessing or of curse, I find alone necessity supreme, with infinite mystery, abysmal dark, unlighted ever by the faintest spark. For us, the fitting shadows of a dream. Yeah. This kind of omnipresent will, a perpetual necessity to suffer mm. in the city of night. Yeah, it's like we were saying about... Um the kind of acceptance of an of a of a collapse of symbolic uh objective symbolic orders you know if this man is a kind of is a, is a proud self-proclaimed atheist the the kind of the death of the the death of the christian moral structure of the object of the objectivity of good and evil is is kind of you know something that 
I guess, yeah, I would imagine as an atheist, <laughs> it's something that he kind of embraces. And yet this just speaks to the paradox of that, of the vacuum. Again, this, this horrible, another pervasive absence of, well, we've, we've done away with, we've done away with this. We've liberated ourselves. It's, it's, it's that kind of Nietzschean thing about, you know, you have to build something on the absence. Uh, you have to kind of build something in the vacuum.